bullshit, it's all just um gay politics. America's gotten kind of whack, but we're not gonna let it go down like that, cause we got a dumb gay podcast, a dumb gay political podcast. We probably don't have all the facts, but we got opinions and we'll probably backtrack. That's why it's a dumb gay podcast, a dumb gay political podcast. Ooh, it's all shit, it's all shit. It's all shit. It's all shit. I mean, are we gonna die? I don't know. I, I, you're extreme. I am extreme. It's all shit. Uh uh. This shit is bananas. B A A A A A S. This shit is Trumpanas. T R U M P A N A N A S. What? I don't know. I don't even know. Hey everybody, welcome to Dumb Gay Politics. I'm Julie. And I'm Brandy. And this is the podcast where we talk about the week in politics, like we're talking about reality TV. And no, we are not going to be talking about the real house husbands of the Academy Awards today. (laughs) If you want to hear our messy, and dare I say, controversial... I would say that, yes. ...take, um, and maybe unpopular as you said <laughs> I, I would say unpopular yes i would say that our uh-huh. our, yeah. our, our our quite possibly unpopular take on on, n- on will smith slapping chris rock mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're gonna have to subscribe to our patreon podcast <laughs> uh just go to julianbrandy.com and there's a link to a free episode so you can try it out and see if you like it but that's where it's going to live uh, that's right. And we really get into it and chop it up and just try. I mean, it could be, it's an infinite, it's an infinite, uh, topic of conversation as far as we're concerned. It's and more of a, it, we, it's more of a processing session. Yes. We didn't organize our thoughts. No. So it's very messy, um, which is why it's, uh, most likely very offensive and going to be triggering for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, we buried it deeply in our subscription only p- Patreon <laughs> And uh, from some of the comments we've already gotten, um, turns out Jada Pinkett Smith is is a lot more hated than than we realized. Who knew? I, yeah, I didn't. I, I just didn't know. I didn't know that an eye roll. It was really about the eye roll heard around the world, and it was her fault. Yeah, I think that because we don't do Facebook, and mm. we're only. I mean, even if we were on full-time Facebookers, I yeah. can guarantee you I would avoid red table talk like the <laughs> yeah. fucking plague because I already know that just is not going to be what I'm into. Uh, but yeah, no. um, just it, it, it under in the dictionary under insufferable, I'm quite sure it's at the top. Like, yeah. wow. But yeah. I guess people who were on Facebook, I mean, that's, that's my – what I think is that the people who really can't stand her and yeah. they just, like, can't even stomach the thought – I think that they're haunted by red table talk that yeah. in, in, infiltrates their every action on Facebook, which is just another reason to get off Facebook. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we're not on Facebook and neither is our Patreon podcast. <laughs> our Patreon podcasts are completely different than this. There's no politics, no ads, no structure, no nothing. It's just us shooting the shit, being controversial. Maybe not making up songs, going on adventures, harassing strangers, eating weird shit, cooking weird shit, and talking shit. And this week we talk shit about Chris Rock and Will Smith. And it's probably not the take people are ready to hear. Um, we really tried to go deep. <laughs> we tried to go deep and really go down all roads. See everyone's, you know, perspectives, journeys, oh, mental sure, health I'm issues. I'm quite sure we missed some. Well, we didn't have time. My God, we could have gone on <laughs> yeah. forever. 
you know. Well, if you do want to hear it, sign up. We do two a week every week. They're both an hour and they're a dollar each. Uh, you don't have to sign up for both. You can choose to do just one a week. We understand uh-huh. that it's annoying to have to pay for podcasts. Right. Which is why we do this one uh, for free. <laughs> and this one is a fuck ton of work. Our mm. Patreon podcasts are not. They're a fun no stress zone and it's super easy to sign up you don't have to download the app if you don't want you can listen right there on patreon.com slash dumb gay politics or you can import the rss feed into whatever app you use for this podcast and it'll show up right next to this podcast or whatever other podcast you listen Mm -hmm. to right if you want to listen to one to see what it's like first there's a link to a free episode in the description of this podcast you just click on the link and it'll take you right there from there, you can look around on Patreon.com and see the pricing tiers and all that shit, you know. After you decide what tier you want to join at, you just pop over and listen to our episode about the slap heard around the world. And after hearing it, you'll probably immediately <laughs> cancel your subscription. Okay, now it's time for our special episode dedicated to future Supreme Court Justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson. No, my first name ain't baby. It's Ketanji. Judge Jackson, if you're next day. I'm not a fool. I just want some respect. So close the door if you want me to respond. Cause privacy is my middle name. My last name is Control. No, my first name ain't baby. It's Ketanji. Judge Jackson, if you're next day. Judge Jackson, if you're next day. I mean, Adam Joseph outdoing himself again. Okay, again. everybody, that is Adam Joseph with our new segment, intertiary song. Yeah, <laughs> um, Judge Jackson, if you're nasty, Judge bitch. Jackson, if you're nasty. I like was like I needed him to do the whole song. I wanted him to like, you know what I mean? But yeah, mm, so good. Thank you, Adam Joseph. It also, was, uh, so also good. the purveyor of um, JoJo and Kiki. Also the purveyor of <laughs> JoJo and Kiki and so many other amazing songs. Check out Adam Joseph. Um, all right. Okay. So last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee held the confirmation hearing for Joe Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson, if you're nasty. Just a quick recap for those of you who don't know, don't care, or simply don't remember. Last month, sitting Supreme Court Justice Stephen K. Breyer announced his retirement, and President Biden nominated the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. Now, Katanji Brown Jackson is showing up to her confirmation hearings as a 51-year-old black woman with more qualifications than anyone currently sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. She went to Harvard, both undergrad and law school. She was a public defender. She was a sentencing commission member. She was a district judge. She was a court of appeals judge. And most importantly, she was a Supreme Court clerk for Justice Breyer, whose seat she is nominated to fill. Her nomination hearings went on for four freaking days uh last week the first day was opening statements made by judge jackson herself and then the 22 members of the senate judiciary committee the next three days consisted of questions and follow-up questions posed by the committee members in 30-minute blocks most if not all of this is done for the purposes of political theater we hear that term a lot and it's never more true than when it comes to hearings with the senate judiciary committee Made up entirely of former lawyers, the Senate Judiciary Committee is chock full of thirsty stunt queens ready for their time to shine. The best and most legendary to ever take the stage was our sexy-ass <laughs> Vice President Kamala Harris. 
For four years during Trump, she ripped every clown that sat before the committee to shreds. I can't let this moment pass without a Kamala Harris appreciation post. Here is a small clip of her Will Smithing, former <laughs> Attorney General Bill Barr. Let it be known that I have turned it into a verb first before anyone else. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh... Yes or no? Could you repeat that question? I will repeat it. <laughs> Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, it's a complicated please, sir. question. Um, the president or anybody else. <laughs> oh, my God. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean, uh, there have been discussions of, of matters out there that uh, – they have not asked me to open an investigation, but... Perhaps they've suggested. I don't know. I wouldn't say suggest. Hinted. I, I don't know. Inferred. <laughs> you don't know. Okay. Um. And for that, you must love Kiki. I mean, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, and I just... Uh, 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 and if you did like that, don't be sad. There's a treasure trove of Kiki WAP clips waiting for you on YouTube. All you have to do is search Kamala Harris best moments from hearings and they'll all pop up. My favorite is her timeless opus entitled Owning Brett Kavanaugh for seven straight minutes. Yeah, I mean, if you were if you were in charge of the Kamala Harris appreciation post, uh -huh. it would have been this whole episode would have been that Brett Kavanaugh hearing over. Um, I as we relived it this this morning, I um, I just can't I've I've blocked him out so hardcore in my mind that I can't seeing him again. I. I literally yeah. cannot believe that person is on the Supreme Court. He is such a fucking tool. It's yeah. unbelievable. Just whiny, the whiny. beer, it all just comes back. What, don't you, didn't you ever, uh, well, let me ask you, I don't know. I I, I just, yeah. I'd like to Will, I'd like to Will Smith him. Yeah. And I'm, I would have no shame in the game of doing it. Well, today, since you weren't, uh, allowed to just make it all about the Brett Kavanaugh, um, <laughs> Kamala Harris owning. Um, now, um, it's about Katanji Brown-Jackson, mm -hmm. um, about the hearings from last week. Mm -hmm. Now, even though this is about her hearings, we aren't going to hear that much from her because, again, the Senate Judiciary Committee is made up of all former lawyers and the queens are my cogs. <laughs> so we're going to start off, because of that, with Judge Jackson's opening statement so that we can experience her voice and her demeanor and her energy and her vibe. Her vibe, guys? What? <laughs> we want to feel the warmth of her voice before we switch to highlighting all the rotted monster <laughs> trolls asking her inane, pointless, passive-aggressive, shady, lying, corrupt questions. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, and distinguished members of the Judiciary Committee, Thank you for convening this hearing and for considering my nomination as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I am humbled and honored to be here. And I am also truly grateful for the generous introductions that my former judicial colleague, Judge Tom Griffith, and my close friend, Professor Lisa Fairfax, have so graciously provided. 
I'm also very thankful for the confidence that President Biden has placed in me and for the kindness that he and the First Lady and the Vice President and the Second Gentleman have extended to me and my family. Today will be the fourth time that I've had the honor of appearing before this committee to be considered for confirmation. Over the past three weeks, I have also had the honor of meeting each member of this committee separately. And I've met with 45 senators in total. Your careful attention to my nomination demonstrates your dedication to the crucial role that the Senate plays in this constitutional process, and I thank you. And while I'm on the subject of gratitude, I must also pause to reaffirm my thanks to God, for it is faith that sustains me at this moment. Even prior to today, I can honestly say that my life has been blessed beyond measure. The first of my many blessings is the fact that I was born in this great nation a little over 50 years ago in September of 1970. Congress had enacted two civil rights acts in the decade before, and like so many who had experienced lawful racial segregation firsthand, my parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, left their hometown of Miami, Florida, and moved to Washington, D.C. to experience new freedom. When I was born here in Washington, my parents were public school teachers. And to express both pride in their heritage and hope for the future, they gave me an African name, Ketanji Onyika, which they were told means lovely one. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer so that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. Like so many families in this country, they worked long hours and sacrificed to provide their children every opportunity to reach their God-given potential. My parents have been married for almost 54 years and they're here with me today. I cannot possibly Thank them enough for everything they've done for me. I love you, Mom and Dad. Um, I love her Mom and Dad, too. <laughs> yeah, okay. they, yeah, yeah. Johnny and Ellery, <laughs> I can't handle it. I know, the parents I know. are public school teachers. They move from Florida to Washington, D.C. They give her an African name. I just, I, they, they're sitting there. I, like, love her parents. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. My father, in particular, bears responsibility for my interest in the law. When I was four, we moved back to Miami so that he could be a full-time law student, and we lived on the campus of the University of Miami Law School. During those years, my mother pulled double duty, working as the sole breadwinner of our family while also guiding and inspiring four-year-old me. My very earliest memories are of watching my father study. He had his stack of law books on the kitchen table while I sat across from him with my stack of coloring books. My parents also instilled in me and my younger brother, Kataj, the importance of public service. After graduating from Howard University, Kataj started out as a police officer, following two of our uncles. After 
the September 11th attacks on our country, Kataj volunteered for the Army and eventually became an infantry officer serving two tours of duty in the Middle East. Kataj is here today providing his love and support as always. Kataj is sitting with Johnny and Ellery and just, whose family is like this? <laughs> it's know. insane. It is insane. Oh, God, the more she talks. And speaking of unconditional love, I would like to introduce you to my husband of 25 years, Dr. Patrick Jackson. Here we go. (laughs) I have no doubt that without him by my side from the very beginning of this incredible professional journey, none of this would have been possible. We met in college more than three decades ago, and since then, he's been the best husband, father, and friend I could ever imagine. Patrick, I love you. He's crying. He is crying (laughs) his eyes out. It's great. It's great. So quick backstory on Judge Jackson, because we can't let the wondrous vision of her Harry Hamlin-esque crying husband go by unremarked. Oh, let's not forget the daughter sitting next to him, who is so beautiful okay she's like a vision like looking over at her dad who is tears are streaming and he he has his glasses on and he keeps wiping them and she's so pretty i can't with the daughter oh my god so her husband's name is dr patrick graves jackson oh patrick dr jackson if you're nasty (laughs) yeah exactly he is the head of gastrointestinal surgery at georgetown hospital they met at harvard which apparently at the time was filled with good-looking guys because her husband is clearly good looking and Kentaji Brown Jackson did some play with Matt Damon, who was also there at that time. And we all know how you feel about Matt Damon, Mimau. Both of us. Okay. <laughs> Love Jason Bjorn. That's true. Um, well, I'm just going to put it out there that she got the last hot years out of Harvard before yeah. Mark Zuckerberg and his disgusting wife came along and stole the fate of the Winkle Douche twins and uglied it up for all the future generations. Yes. Good riddance, Harvard. We've all moved on to <laughs> Yale for our problematic clout chasing. They have two daughters, Layla, 17, and Talia, 21. They were both at the hearing, but they are sitting two feet apart. And Layla, the supermodel one, is in the seat closest to Dr. Jackson. And Talia is sitting further away and she's wearing a mask. So she's probably just as gorgeous, but her face is mostly covered. And the shitty people running the hearing coverage never really give us a good look at her. But we officially love them both and hate masks. (laughs) Okay, so the first piece of shit we're going to feature from the hearings was Senator John Cornyn from Texas (laughs) Who goes off on how the Obama-era Supreme Court sets public policy regarding matters that are never mentioned in the Constitution. Matters such as marriage, which then dramatically change the social fabric of society. Social fabric such as giving gay people the equal right to marry. (laughs) Let me talk to you a little bit about some of the decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court over many years, starting perhaps with Dred, Dred Scott that adopts the substantive due process argument to determine the constitutionality of, uh, of various laws. Perhaps the most recent decision by the Supreme Court that was a dramatic departure from, uh, from previous laws in the states and in the nation was the Oberfell case which um, dealt with same-sex marriage. In the opinions that were written there, it was noted that here we are 200, 
at the time, 234 years after the Constitution had been ratified, 135 years since the 14th Amendment had been ratified, that the Supreme Court articulated a, a new fundamental right, which is a right to same-sex marriage. You're familiar with that case, aren't you? I am. At the time, it was noted that 11 states, including the District of Columbia, had, had passed laws sanctioning same-sex marriage. But also at the same time, there were 35 states who put it on the ballot, and 32 of those states decided to maintain the traditional definition of marriage between a man and a woman. Do you agree with me that uh, marriage is not simply a governmental institution, it's also a religious institution? Well, Senator, um, marriages are often performed in re religious institutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the, when the, you agree with me that many of the, the major religions that I can think of, and they're Christianity, Judaism, Islam, embrace a traditional definition of marriage, correct? I am aware that there are various religious faiths that define marriage in a traditional way. <laughs> do, you, um, do you see that when the Supreme Court makes a dramatic pronouncement about the invalidity of state marriage laws, that it will inevitably set in conflict um, between those who ascribe to the Supreme Court's edict and those who have a firmly held religious belief that marriage is between a man and a woman? Well, Senator, I, these issues are being litigated, as you know, throughout the courts as people um, raise issues. And so it's, I'm limited in what I, I can say about them. I'm aware that there are cases. Um, no, I'm not asking you to decide a case or predict how you would decide in the future. I'm just asking, isn't it apparent that when the Supreme Court decides that something that is not even in the Constitution is a fundamental right and no state can pass any law that conflicts with the Supreme Court's edict, particularly in an area where people have sincerely held religious beliefs. So does that mean that people who believe they should marry 12-year-olds should be allowed to marry 12-year-olds, even though the Supreme Court gives the right to 12-year-olds not to be married by 14 men? Doesn't that necessarily <laughs> create a conflict between what people may believe is a matter of their religious doctrine or faith and what the federal government says is the law of the land? Well, Senator, that is the nature of a right, that um, <laughs> when there is a right, um, it means that there are limitations on regulation, even if uh, people are regulating pursuant to their sincerely held religious beliefs. You agree with marriage is not mentioned in the Constitution, is it? It is not mentioned directly, no. And um, religious freedom and, um, is mentioned in the First Amendment explicitly, correct? It is. 
Good one, John. Do you share my concern that when the court takes on the role of identifying an unenumerated right, in other words, it's not mentioned in the Constitution, and creates a new right, declaring that anything conflicting with that is unconstitutional, that it creates a circumstance where those who may hold traditional beliefs like something as important as marriage, that they will be so important um, vilified as unwilling to assent to this new orthodoxy. I think what we agree with is that you're a douche, John. <laughs> I wish they would go back to civil unions. This podcast would get a whole hell of a lot more popular. I know that. Take away gay people's rights. We'll be killing at the game. And on that note, since this podcast is called Dumb Gay Politics, we couldn't let a question about gay marriage during a Supreme Court nomination hearing pass without giving it its proper drag. <laughs> so, Meow Meow, if you'll please do oh. us the honors. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, for those of us who needed to look up half of the legal talk of what they were talking about, it is important for some context here. Um, what are an unenumerated rights in the Constitution? The Ninth Amendment of the Constitution states, quote, the, uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Because the rights protected by the Ninth Amendment are not specified, they are referred to as unenumerated, thus giving us all the leeway in the world for such douche garbage as John Cornyn to argue that because he has his religious freedom, that means he gets to have and tell us that we can't get married, gay people. He gets to tell women they can't have abortions. Um, and if they wanted to, and they did, before slavery became illegal, they could claim all kinds of things as to why in the constant they could point to the constitution and say um black people aren't people or what whatever right. and so Here. by looking at your unenumerated rights you then evolve in society and you go you have a right you then point back to the constitution and go well you know what if i have a right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and it doesn't explicitly say in the Constitution, but only for black or, or excuse me, only for white people. Can it not be argued that black people are people? And thus we have now we have that. Yeah. Women do the same thing. We are women aren't in the Constitution. Women literally are not in the Constitution. We don't exist. And they had to go and fight to get into amendments in the Constitution so that women would have the right to vote, would have the right to their autonomy, would have the right to their body. We're still fighting for our body. We're right. literally still fighting for our body. And they will go and fight that religion gives them the right to tell and us whatever we want. by his logic, only men are created equal and we're Correct. not equal. White and men. I'm quite sure he believes that still. And he clearly does. And the, the leading, he is such a fucking asshole, this guy. When I tell you, he doesn't want the Federal uh, Voting Rights Act. He's voted for every single thing for abortion. He doesn't want... Uh, women to be able to cross county lines he wants the state to take over he does he wants criminal charges for people who perform abortions he's literally the worst this guy john cornyn should get will smith and lest anyone doubt that julie is not deep 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 <sighs> in the game of lgbtq civil unions versus marriage here is her song, Commitment Ceremony, to prove her credibility. Mm. A song that came out in 2005, nearly 20 years ago, and wow. apparently is still relevant. Mm. 
Amen. <laughs> we can be special friends and live together. We'll buy a house and be roommates forever. We can be partners like Jacoby and Meyer. You'll drive the car and I'll fix the tire because I'm butch. And when you're down, your burden I will carry because our love is strong. We ought to get commitment ceremony. I want a commitment ceremony, you. I want to live my life. I want a commitment ceremony, you say yes. Say yes and be my domestic partner. have a dog and a couple of kids even though it'd be difficult for me to adopt your biological baby because technically we're not really family as a government of the church shouldn't they be separated and when I'm sick I know you'll be there wishing you can get in my hospital room but you're waiting for my mother's permission no one has cared for me the way you have in my life oh I want to say to the world special significant really good friend <laughs> I want a commitment ceremony you yes. I want to live my life I want a commitment ceremony you say yes say yes and be my oh why is our love a crime huh? just because it involves two vaginas oh god what is the solution do you really want to amend the constitution I pay the as all those married heterosexual asses Come on you homos, stop making a fuss You can have your civil unions at the back of the bus I don't think so I want a commitment ceremony, you I want to live my life I want a commitment ceremony, you Say yes, say yes, say yes Say mm, how, say special rights we want the same rights you see i am an american citizen and i do pay my taxes and i might be gay but my money is green motherfucker and freedom is free freedom is free freedom isn't something you fight for because it's called freedom you dumb fuck well if you enjoyed that song <laughs> It's available from Julie's album, The Awkward Studio Sessions, available on iTunes or Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you stream your music. Uh, okay, well, while I process the complete and utter horror of revisiting my old album, of which uh, you took, styled, and shot the album cover of me standing in my bedroom in Sherman Oaks, I just want to say two things. One, um, a credit needs to also go out to Jason Blanche, who co-wrote that song, and Eben Levy, who produced it uh, in the very first round. So I just want to say that. Well, when, what's her dumbass name who made the Awkward Studio I Sessions, which I also titled. That's true. That, <laughs> I can't know. It was the first on Indigo Etheridge, and then it was on this. And I can't remember. I can't remember her name. Me either. Well, anyway, um, let's listen to the second best clip of the entire four days of hearings. 
Okay, so it's kind of long, which is fine because I need some time to recover. And um, <laughs> it's about the dark money groups that Republicans were trying to claim funded Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. The most qualified person to ever be nominated is only there because she was funded by Democratic dark money groups. Also, I'm sorry, but Democratic dark money groups? <laughs> I don't think so. That's a Republican game through and through. If Democrats knew how to do that successfully, we would never have had Donald Trump. You do the math. Not only did we get Trump out of nowhere, Republicans took over the House and the Senate and they got three people on the Supreme Court in four years. They can fuck all the way off to the sun with that bullshit. Okay, so the senator in this clip dispelling the dark money rumor bullshit is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. We always kind of wrote off Sheldon Whitehouse as a boring nerd. But due to his thick head of hair and the level of swagger with which he owns every Republican douche fuck in this room, he went from dorky Senator Whitehouse to, okay, Sheldon, you better work, you sexy fucking nerd. Um, one of the headlines about yesterday read, Republicans hammer dark money groups. And I'll be the first to concede that there is dark money on both sides. And I hope very much we can get rid of it on both sides shortly by legislation. But there is a difference, I believe, between a dark money interest rooting for someone and right-wing dark money interests having a role in actually picking the last three Supreme Court justices. Now, how do we know that they had a role in doing that? Well, we know because everybody involved said so. It was pretty straightforward stuff. President Trump said we're going to have great Judges, conservative, all picked by the Federalist Society. That's pretty plain. Uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, the former chairman, was asked, some of, was said, some have accused President Trump of outsourcing his judicial selection process to the Federalist Society. I say, damn right. The co-founder of the Federalist Society said that uh, the administration is relying on the Federalist Society to come up with qualified nominees. <sighs> and then Don McGahn, who ran the operation for Trump in the White House, said, I've been a member of the Federalist Society since law school, still am, so frankly, it seems like that role has been insourced. So there's pretty clear and pretty broad agreement that that selection process took place out of the public eye, and it appears to have been informed heavily by dark money interests. They were not alone in saying this. Here's Laura Ingram on Fox News, concerned about abortion cases coming up before the court. We have six Republican appointees on this court. After all the money that's been raised, the Federalist Society, all these big fat cat dinners, if this court with six justices cannot do the right thing, and I think it's time to circumscribe the jurisdiction of this court. That's the way to change things finally. So we have people who are in a position to know what was going on behind the scenes, describing the six Republican appointees on the court who got there after all the money that has been raised, the Federalist Society, and all these big fat cat dinners, and threatening that if they don't do what she considers to be the right thing, They'll be punished by circumscribing the jurisdiction of the court. Okay, go die, Laura Ingram. Now, this <laughs> clip's going to go on, but I just want to say, in case 
It, if, the, if I were listening to this before having suffered through this podcast for the every week for the last five years, mm-hmm. I might think that the Federalist Society was something in government. So I just want to say, just to make it clear that the Federalist Society is a private group, mm-hmm. a conservative Republican private group, right? Mem it's a yep. special interest group. So the fact that they're getting together and choosing, making a list of Supreme Court, all, all judges. They don't just do the Supreme Court. They do the appellate court. They do all the federal courts. Yes. And they have a list. And they gave that list to Donald Trump. They gave that list to Mitch McConnell during mm-hmm. Obama. Right. So because during Obama, there was a period of time where the se- where the Senate was Republican. And they rushed through tons of judicial nominees. Then, and the whole list was made by the Federal Society. Right. So I just wanted to stop the clip and just say that's not a government group. Right. It's a pr- private, privately funded special interest group that's conservative Republican. And that they're like, they're like in law. They're like lawyers and ju- they're like, yeah. it's so insular. It's grotesquely insular, the fact that they're in law, but also doing what, ju- but yeah. also legislating. And it, yeah, they're legislating and it should I mean, be illegal. And then they went into this hearing for Katanji Brown Jackson and claimed with different graphs that she's there via dark money right. and the irony. And then our sexy new favorite sexy nerd from <laughs> Rhode Island is fucking owning their ass. That's pretty big talk, but it's backed up by pretty big dollars. If you go back to before this enterprise got underway, the uh, money that came into the Federal Society from what's called Donors Trust which has been described as the dark money ATM of the right, a Koch Brothers affiliated operation. (laughs) Gross. Back, say, in 2002, it got $5,000. No big deal. By 2019, when this operation was in full swing, it got $7 million. We don't know who the real donor was because that's the job of donors' trust, is to de-identify the donor, to launder the identity off the donation so you can't connect the dots any longer. But $7 million, I think, is quite a lot of money. And unfortunately, the Federalist Society was not alone. Right down the hallway is something called the Judicial Crisis Network. Its offices on the same hallway as the Federalist Society in the downtown Washington building, although JCN's website and tax filings list a mailing address at a different location, an address shared by multiple companies. And right down that hallway, at that judicial crisis network, there's even more money pouring. And here is how much poured into the last three nominations via the judicial crisis network. $21 million related in time to the Gorsuch nomination, $17 million to the Kavanaugh nomination, $14 million to the Barrett Nomination. Barrett. It's like you, Mimi. And of course, we don't know who the actual donor is. Rona Pinkett. Barrett. Could Pinkett. be the same yeah. donor. Gina who knows? Pinkett. And because we don't know who the donor is, we don't know what business they might have had before the court. And I think it matters when people are seeking to influence the makeup of the court that the public understand what business they may have before the court. And anonymity oh. hides all of that. And they didn't stop with. Trump nominees. They got up on the air, a dark money group using dark money to accuse Biden's Supreme Court nominee. At that point, a player to be named later. He didn't even have a nominee yet. Jackson had not been selected at this point. 
of being a tool or a stooge of liberal activist dark money. <laughs> this is a screenshot from their advertisement paid for by the Judicial Crisis Network. Judicial Crisis, it makes so me want to So it's worth understanding someone. for a moment what the Judicial Crisis Network is and where it lies. And it lies in a network of organizations. The um, prevailing way that political mischief is accomplished these days is with a paired 501c3 and 501c4 organization. The 501c3 gets the tax deduction. The 501c4 gets to participate in political activity. I wish he would teach me everything known to mankind. <laughs> political mischief. Wow. And sure enough, there's an 85 fund and a Concord fund that are twinned together as a 501c3 and 501c4 organization. And they filed under Virginia corporation law to operate under what they call fictitious names. That's the term of law under which they file, fictitious names. And there's the Judicial Crisis Network, one of the fictitious names of the Concord Fund. It has a parallel judicial education project that is a fictitious name of the 85 Fund. If you're interested in voter suppression, you can move down to the Honest Elections Project Action, uh. another fictitious name. And it's 501c3 twin, the Honest Elections Project. And they've even got new ones that are less active, free to learn action and free to learn. So these are eight organizations Free to learn, that's that are against critical race theory. As lawyers, we think from time to time about piercing the corporate veil. That's corporate veiling that you could pierce with a banana. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> He's and here all night. back and forth with three groups called CRC Advisors, CRC Strategies, and CRC Public Relations that take and send money to these organizations as part of the sort of planning element. You might say that CRC advisors, CRC strategies, and CRC public relations, this trio, is the uh, command center. And this is the operational torso of the creature. <laughs> it is a creature. So I show this all because it <sighs> shows considerable effort when somebody goes to that much trouble to create that many organizations to hide how much money they've spent to control the nomination process to the court. To control this fucking country. Yep. And it's no small amount of money. In the original Washington Post research, they pegged it at $250 million. Further research led to testimony in my court subcommittee that um, the number was actually $400 million. $400 million. And we have a recent report that we have in fact checked that the number is actually even higher than that. So I may amend this number upward once we're done with our <laughs> Fact-checking. $400 million funding conservative activists behind-the-scenes campaign to remake the nation's courts. That operation is a very different thing than a group rooting for somebody. And I want to make sure that that difference is clear since our friends on the Republican side have made dark money such a big focus of their attention already. There is a drastic difference between rooting for somebody and controlling the turnstile that decides who gets on the court. Yeah. 
controlling the funding someone's campaign of the political campaigns that pursue the folks on the court. And actually, once you get on the court, we're working now with the judiciary itself mm -hmm. to try to clean up the mess of that same anonymous money appearing before the court <laughs> through phony front groups that file amicus griefs and little flotillas, or if it's an important enough case, in a full armada of dark money-funded front groups. We just got done listening to douchebag John Cornyn talk about how they don't, they didn't want gay marriage legalized. This is right. all to re. The, I'm sure the judicial crisis fucking network was born right directly out of that. Probably. And they all they want to do is reverse gay marriage. They want to reverse equal rights. They want to reverse any voting legislation. They want to reverse mm -hmm. abortion rights. Right. This is what they're doing, yep. and it's it's fucking real. It's not just oh, they're going to get some stooge elected. No, they're, they do think there's a judicial crisis and they're, they're reshaping the court in order to control the fucking country. Mm -hmm. Next up is the biggest piece of filth, flour and filth, rat fink in the Senate, Ted Cruz from Texas. I really feel sorry for the Democrats in Texas that John Cornyn's from there, too, mm. because their gerrymandered, corrupt state government gifts them with two salty supremacist <laughs> soup cracker senators every fucking election. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable the amount of damage that these guys do from their voices to their votes. They literally control the conservative narrative in this country, and they've been seriously corrosive to all of our rights, like I just said. <sighs> yep. Uh, first, John Cornyn and the right for LGBTQ Americans to marry whoever they choose. And now Ted Cruz taking issue with private educators teaching children about the history of race and slavery in America. These white Republicans, and fine, and Ted Cruz is Latino as well, as he <laughs> likes to say. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, uh, oh, he does like oh, to bring it up. Okay. Are doing everything okay. they can to take us backward in time. I don't even think they want to live. I don't even think they want to live back during slavery. I think they want to go back to pre-civil rights movement when white men controlled everything and everyone and black men and all women were basically indentured slaves. Yeah, they wanted indentured slaves yeah. in servitude. Mm hmm. It's funny revisiting these hearings in the echo chamber of Will Smith's slap because now all we can think about is how badly we want him to slap each of these men harassing Katanji Brown Jackson. Oh, yeah. Just walk right out and slap him. Yeah, think about that. Think about that when you think about that slap. If he did that to any of them, how mad would you be? So let me ask you a different question. Is, is critical race theory <laughs> taught in schools? Is it taught kindergarten through 12th? Senator, I don't. No, I don't think so. I believe it's an academic theory that's at the law school level. Okay. Um, as you may recall, during the confirmation hearings of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, there was a great deal of attention paid to the fact that Justice Barrett served as a board member on the Board of Trustees of a religious private school, and, and the press focused very intensely on the views of that school. In your questionnaire to this committee, you disclose that you are similarly on a board, specifically the Board of Trustees for the Georgetown Day School, and that you've been a board member since 2019 and you're currently still a board member. Is, is, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, in regard to the George, Georgetown Day School, you've publicly said, quote, since becoming a member of the GDS community seven years ago, Patrick and I have witnessed the transformative power of a rigorous progressive education that is dedicated to fostering critical thinking, 
interdependence, and social justice. When you refer to social justice and the school's mission on social justice, what, what did you mean by that? Thank you, Senator, for allowing me to address this issue. Georgetown Day School has a special history that I think is um, important to understand when you consider my service on that board. The school was founded in 1945 in Washington, D.C. at a time in which, by law, there was racial segregation in this community. Black students were not allowed in the public schools to go to school with white students. Georgetown Day School is a private school that was created when three white families, Jewish families, got together with three black families and said that despite the fact that the law requires us to separate, despite the fact that the law is set up to make sure that black children are not treated the same as everyone else, we are going to form a private school so that our children can go to school together. The idea of equality, justice, is at the core of the Georgetown Day School mission. And it's a private school such that every parent who joins the community does so willingly with an understanding that they are joining a community that is designed to make sure that every child is valued. Every child is treated as having inherent worth and none are discriminated against because of race. So Judge Jackson, all of us will agree that, that no one should be discriminated against because of race. <laughs> but none of us really believe you're Latino. you just testified a minute ago that you didn't know if critical race theory was taught in K through 12, I, I will confess, I, I find that statement a little hard to reconcile uh, with the public record. Because if you look at the Georgetown Day School's curriculum, it is filled and overflowing with critical race theory. That, that among the, doc, the books that are either assigned or recommended. Get your pens and papers out because you're all going <laughs> to want to buy these like Julie bought every single one. Uh, they include mm. critical race theory and introduction. Yes. Uh, they include the end of policing and ad an advocacy for abolishing police. Okay. They include How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. It, that one looks so they good. They include literally stacks and stacks of books. And I'll tell you two of the ones that were most stunning. They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby. Amazing. Uh, by I Ibram Kendi. And there are portions of this. I don't want an anti-racist baby. <laughs> I want a racist baby. I'm not I mean, even going to have a baby if it won't be racist. Are you saying that babies are born racist? Look. That, that, that I find really quite remarkable. One portion of the book says babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Correct. <laughs> Another portion of the book, they recommend to babies confess to their when sins. being racist. <laughs> now, this is a book that is taught at Georgetown Day School to students in pre-K through second grade, so four through seven years old. Um, do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? 
so dumb. Senator. She's just like, Dick, just Ugh. fuck off. I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of, is a private school. Okay, so, so you agree critical race theory is taught at Georgetown Day School? I don't know because the board is not, um, the board does not control the curriculum. The board does not focus on that. That's not what we do as board members, so I'm actually not sure. Well, and I'll note that the board is, is chaired by Professor Fairfax, your college roommate who introduced you yesterday. So the two of you serve on the board together. Um, another book that is on the uh, summer reading for third through fifth grade is a book called Stamp for Kids, again by Ibram Kendi. Also Kennedy. looks good. Uh, I read the entirety of the book, and I, I will it. say it is uh, an astonishing book. Uh, on page 33, it asks the question, can we send white people back to Europe? Well, I guess we can't send you, because apparently you're not white. <laughs> Clearly taken out of context, because, by the way, I'm going to assume and I haven't read it, but that's got to be in some sort of little parable of, of the, how the they would say. The out of context. Yeah. Even pulling the books out is out of context. The books look amazing. He inadvertently made them bestsellers. He's a douche. He read that book cover to cover and didn't even become less racist. I don't believe he didn't read that book. He's lying. I mean, it's a short book. <laughs> Okay, so the last of the douchebag brigade we're going to play is our boo, Senator Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is a closeted asshat from South Carolina. He's a lawn jockey and a MAGA jock sniffer, but we love him anyway because he's funny, he's authentic, and his sycophancy is not personal to Trump and the maggots. Lindsey Graham follows the power. He's a clout-chasing starfucker who knows that his job as senator only exists insofar as the dark money being laundered to elect him. These things bother other people. And they bother us, too, but they don't stop us from enjoying him, do they, Mau Mau? No. He's an old-school Republican crunch-wrap supremacist who's the type to say, I'm not racist, I have tons of black friends. Mm -hmm. And I love my little Asian happy-ending massage therapy boy. <laughs> yeah. And I don't hate women, I just think they aren't as smart as men should demand to be paid the same. <laughs> exactly. So during this hearing, Lindsey Graham's whole thing was how Democrats fucked over Brett Kavanaugh during his hearing and repeatedly harassed and verbally abused Amy Corney Barrett during hers. He's obsessed with how it's not fair that Democrats do the same thing as Republicans, yet Republicans are vilified for being the awful people that they are. He can see the hypocrisy, which I agree is there, but he can't see the nuance because of why people think Republicans are rotted racists. Because, well, because he's a Republican. So here he is totally lying and bugging on about how Democrats love Judge Jackson, but they hated one of the other possible nominees, and Democrats only celebrate diversity when it suits them and not when women or people of color are conservative. And he is kind of right, and we can be guilty of that, but it doesn't matter because ultimately he's always all kinds of wrong, and this time is no fucking exception.
Uh, please note at the end of the clip when Senator Dick Durbin, who's the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, bangs the gavel and issues a correction to Lindsey Graham regarding Democrats and also on some fairy tale claim he made about prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. Dick Durbin is about as cutting as a bowl of oatmeal, but he still manages to turn Lindsey Graham into the cunty queen he truly is. And I guess here's my point I'm trying to make to the American people, to my Democratic colleagues. I wish you had that same attitude when an African-American conservative is appointed to high office in the judiciary. So what happened with Janice Rogers Brown? In 2003, (laughs) she was an African-American nominee for the D.C. District Court, uh, 54 years old, a little bit older than you, but pretty close. She was a daughter and granddaughter of sharecroppers, a childhood in Alabama under Jim Crow. And I guess here's my point I'm trying to make to the American people, to my Democratic colleagues. I wish you had that same attitude when an African-American conservative is appointed to high office in the judiciary. So what happened with Janice Rogers Brown? In 2003, she was an African-American nominee for the D.C. District Court, uh, 54 years old, a little bit older than you, but pretty close. She was a daughter and granddaughter of sharecroppers, a childhood in Alabama under Jim Crow. She was a uh, single mother, a member of the California Supreme Court. Instead of celebrating how far we've come, my Democratic colleagues filibustered her ascension to the D.C. Circuit Court. Because it's well known on our side that we we're very much considering her to be the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. <clears throat> so we'll have a 20 minutes more later on, but here's what I would say. That every group that wants to pack the court, that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts that are going to destroy America, that consider the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And this is all I can say is the fact that so many of these left-wing radical groups that would destroy the law as we know it declared war on Michelle Childs and supported you is problematic for me. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Graham. Let me mention uh, a few points here. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn was a strong supporter of Michelle Childs, and now I believe he is publicly supporting your nomination. And Michelle Childs has been nominated by President Biden uh, to be a circuit judge, and she will be considered by this committee as quickly as possible. Thanks, Dick. On the issue of Guantanamo, there are currently 39 Guantanamo detainees remaining. The annual budget for Guantanamo is $540 million per year, mm. which means each of these detainees uh, is being held at the expense of 12 or $13 million per year. If they would be incarcerated at Florence, Colorado, the Supermax prison, federal prison, the amount would be dramatically, dramatically less. Since 9-11, nearly 1,000 convicted in the United States on terrorism charges. Since 2009, with the beginning of the Obama administration, the recidivism rate of Guantanamo detainees released is 5%. Mr. Chairman, according to the uh, Director (laughs) of National Intelligence, is 31%. Somebody is wrong here. If you're going to talk about what I said, I'm going to respond to what you said. If we close Gitmo and move them to Colorado, do you support indefinite detention under the law? <laughs> he comes between him detainees? and Dick. I would just say uh, I'm giving the facts. And I the answer make... is no. 
I want to make sure that it's clear. <laughs> the 31% you referred to goes back to the year 2009? What does it matter when it goes back to? We had them and they got loose and they started killing people. Well, I could just say that... Uh, if you're one of the people killed in 2005, does it matter to you when we release them? I suggest them. that the president of your own party released them in... I'm suggesting the system has failed miserably and advocates to change this system like she was in, was was advocating would destroy our ability to protect this country. We're at war. We're not fighting a crime. This is not some passage of time event. As long as they're dangerous, I hope they all die in jail if they're going to go back and kill Americans. It won't bother me one bit if 39 of them die in prison. That's a better outcome than letting them go. And if it costs 500 million to keep them in jail, keep them in jail because they're going to go back to the fight. Look at the friggin' Afghan government. It's made up of former detainees at Gitmo. This whole thing by the left about this war ain't working. Oh, but you don't want to spend 500 million on fucking infrastructure. No. But I do love you. Please come on the podcast. <laughs> if anyone, anyone has a connection to Lindsey Graham, I would fucking give my left tit to get him on. <laughs> Well, last but not least, we wanted to end on a positive note to honor the very exciting presumed confirmation of America's first black female Supreme Court Justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Not only was this the absolute best part of the four-day hearing, next to Kamala Harris and her endless verbal Will Smithing of every witness in every hearing, this is one of the best moments to ever happen in the history of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yes, it's a long clip and like a little bit longer than any of these other ones we've heard. But please do yourself a favor and stick around because it's so good. And you're going to want to say you heard it when in its entirety, as it's already an instant part of our government's hallowed history. And Cory Booker has cemented himself as this generation's John Lewis. Um, and I'd also say get some tissues handy. <laughs> Senator Booker. Uh, thank you very much, Judge. After me, only five to go. <laughs> but sit back for a second, because uh, I don't have questions right away. I actually have a number of things I, I just want to say, because this has been uh, not a surprise, given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things, um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. People are taking uh, a thousand cases you've been over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a something, something like that, something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to, in to a case. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And the folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my, my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. 
none of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I, I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they, they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them? And they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. If you remember, I was uncharted. Um, <laughs> but that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70 plus percent in many states are people are doing just like you did. But I'm a, I'm a Democratic senator. I, 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 I've never quoted from this very well-respected conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National uh, Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. I'll just read the first paragraph. I would oppose Judge Kachan, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. I address that in a separate post. For now, I want to dis discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I, I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this, in this, in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children. To a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children, I, I mean, this is a, a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the, considered like the second most powerful court in our land. And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No, why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. You are, I, I don't mean this in any way, because if anybody called me average, I would, <laughs> I would be upset, but you are a, a mainstream judge. Your sentencing, I've looked at the data, falls in the mainstream on everything from child sexual assault to all the other issues that people are trying to bring up. Some of these things are being cast at you that you called George Bush a war criminal. Come on, that is painful. <laughs> Especially because, as you said, the brief change. These are names that you have to put in. And we're talking about a real issue that goes to the core of our values, torture. Barack Obama was named once he 
once Bush left office. There is an absurdity to this that is, it, it, it is almost comical if it was not so dangerous. Because the next time a judge comes before us on the right or the left that has a body of work like you do, gosh, one of the, uh, some performance artists on our side could pull out one of the cases where they were below the sentencing guidelines, say, for example, it was on something like as horrific as rape that we all agree is horrific, and they could suddenly put themselves as the defense. How dare we put someone who's soft on crime? Well, are you soft on crime? God bless America. I got this great text. I've become really good friends with the folks at the FOP for my negotiations. And this was my favorite text. You all got to get this. I think my brother Kennedy might get a kick out of this. He goes, things that are uncountable, stars in the sky, grains of sand on the beach, and the number of times Democrats will mention that the FOP endorsed Judge Jackson in this hearing. <laughs> but let me mention it again. <laughs> Just in case my people say you're rough on crime, folks, really want to try to make that stick. You were endorsed by the largest organization of rank-and-file police officers. You were endorsed by the bosses, the largest organization of chiefs of police. And, and you were endorsed by Noble, who I hope people find out more about that organization. You got uncles that are officers. You got a brother, not just an officer, who went to serve after 9-11. Your family's not soft on terrorism. He went out there to capture and kill and defend this country from terrorists. I, I, I actually sitting back here and finding this astonishing, but then I, I do my homework. I, I love that my colleague brought up Constance Baker Motley. You know, when, when, when she was getting to the floor of the Senate, they were trying to stop her with outrageous accusations. You know what the accusation was back then? She was a communist, dragging up stories, trying to throw anything that they might stick. But this is what you and I know. Any one of us senators could yell as loud as we want that Venus can't return a serve. We could yell as loud as we want that Beyonce can't sing. We could yell as much as we want that astronaut Mae Jamison didn't go all that high. But you know what? They got nothing to prove. As it says in the Bible, let the work I've done speak for me. Well, you have spoken. You started speaking as a little girl, watching that man right there try to raise a family and study law while your mama supported everybody. This is when she starts crying. You spoke in high school when you started distinguishing yourself and you know what you said when they told you you couldn't go to Harvard? Watch me. I went to law school. I didn't serve on the law review. You did. I didn't clerk at every level of the federal court. You clerked for a Supreme Court justice, one widely respected on both sides, which really shaped you. You left there, and, and, and you went to private practice. And you know what you found? This is what you told me. That you had those tough choices that working moms have to make, the demands of a private law firm, raising your kids, it, it just didn't add up. You went before this Senate three times in a bipartisan manner. God bless America. We don't do that much stuff bipartisan around here. 
You went to become a public defender because you wanted to understand all aspects of the law. Who does that? <laughs> we live in a society that's very materialistic sometimes, very, very consumeristic. You went to, do people become public defenders for the money? No. Your family and you speak to service, service, service. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I have, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. <laughs> I'm jogging this morning and I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrified, because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> And this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me, because I think, because I'm sitting so close to you, <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? You didn't get here because of some dark money groups? You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying, nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not gonna let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still mm. remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here, but at night when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices. The guy comes up to me, all he wants to say, I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here. But he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him, and he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech. But talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced, and you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues, and. I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala and we have a knowing glance, which we've had for years, when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means. What it means. And I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're a 
you're, you're an intellect, you love books, but for me, I'm sorry. I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to, be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's gonna steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's gonna steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago, it was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. And what were the words of your heroes and mine? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk. You and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish, you may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm gonna show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into mere slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America, but they were gonna build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm gonna make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans, from Stonewall women to Seneca, hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them and how they were critical for us defying gravity. All of these people loved America. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking. But you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through, <laughs> five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not gonna stop. They're gonna accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister, don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here.
And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Harry Tubman is one of my heroes because the more I read about this person, the more, I mean, she was viciously beaten. Her whole life, she used to fall into spells, cracked skull. She faced starvation, chased by dogs. And when she got to freedom, what did she do? Did she rest? No, she went back again and again and again. The star was, the sky was full of stars, but she found one that was a harbinger of hope for better days, not just for her and those people that were enslaved, but a, a harbinger of hope for this country. And she never gave up on America. She fought in the, led troops in the Civil War. She was involved in the suffrage movement. And as I came back from my run, after being near assaulted by, a, by someone on the street, I thought about her and how she looked up. She kept looking up. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped looking up. And that star, it was a harbinger of hope. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Dumb Gay Politics. Thank you guys for listening. We love you all so much. If you're hopefully you're still here. That was a lot of clips. That was a lot of listening. Yep. Um, we're so grateful for all 14 of you, especially now. Please consider joining our Patreon podcast if you haven't yet. I know we never fucking shut up about it, but <laughs> we need it. We need we need it. It's one dollar for one <laughs> podcast a week and two dollars mm. for two podcasts a week. They're both an hour. And this week is a hot mess processing session about will smith slapping chris rock some of you may hate us after you hear it but hey there's no politics <laughs> there's no ads there's no structure no stress and best of all you won't have to hear us pressure you to join the patreon if nothing else hearing us have the wrong take about will smith slapping chris rock will distract you from your own life because you'll be thinking about how annoying and insufferable and tone deaf we are hey a processing session is about processing okay all your thoughts and feelings are okay. And that's the point. It's a safe space for every single emotion and feeling to be talked about. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what a processing session is for. Thank so you. when you're listening and you don't like something, keep processing. 
you got to keep processing. That's what this is about. Now, if you want to see what it's like before you sign up, there's a link to a free episode in the description of this week's podcast, or you can go to our website, julieandbrandy.com, and there's a button on every page that says click to listen to a free episode of our Patreon podcast. If our FOMO plan works and you decide to join, it's super easy to import our Patreon podcast into whatever app you use for podcasts. You don't have to listen on patreon.com or even download the Patreon app if you don't want to. But if you do, there's a whole family there for you to get to know and hang out with. And if not, leave us a review on iTunes about how much you hate us. We like to pretend we have more than 14 listeners for all the other haters who lurk in our timeline. And as always, it's been real and it's been fun. But mostly, it's been gay and it's been dumb. And Judge Jackson. If you're nasty. <laughs> How'd you do, I? See you've met, my faithful handyman. He's just a little broad dime because when you knocked, he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung up by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite From transsexual Transylvania <laughs> Let me show you a rhyme And maybe play you a sign You look like you're both pretty groovy Or if you want something visual That's not too abysmal we could take in an old Steve Reeves movie. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. Right. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry. Well, you got caught with a flat wheel. How about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> Why don't you stay for the night? Night. Or maybe a bite. Night. I could show you my favorite obsession. I've been making a man with blonde hair and a tan, and he's good for relieving my tension. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Hey, hey, I'm just a sweet transvestite. Transsexual Transylvania <laughs> So, come up to the lab And see what's on the slab I see you shiver with anticipation But maybe the rain is really to blame so I'll remove the cause 
<laughs> but not the symptom. <laughs> <laughs>